Hello and welcome to the Meningitis Foundation podcast. We aim to provide you with information about meningitis and septicemia and the diseases that cause them, in particular pneumococcal disease and meningococcal disease. Today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Api Talimatonga. Dr. Talimatonga has a diverse career to date. In previous roles, he's worked as a personal physician to the President of Fiji and held held a position within the Ministry of Health as Chief Advisor for Community Health Service Improvement and Clinical Director, Pacific Health. He has a wealth of experience working with people here in New Zealand as well as around the Pacific. Dr. Talimatonga is also a GP and he works between two really busy practices, one in Christchurch and one in Manukau, Auckland. RP is in the studio with me today and welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. Brilliant. Now, RP, on the back of the recent meningococcal W epidemic in Northland and the impact of this disease on our Maori and Pacific population, I just wanted to ask the one big question that sits in my mind is, is there a particular community member like our those of the Maori or Pacific population at higher risk for meningococcal disease? Yes, there's a lot that we know about meningococcal disease. However, there's a lot we still need to learn about. But we know that it is associated with people who live in close proximity with each other, overcrowded households, households that are perhaps not well insulated, We know that people who are exposed to smoking at a higher rate or to binge drinking in particular at a higher rate. And so when you look at the communities here in Aotearoa, you see that Maori and Pacific are overrepresented in those areas. So they are at high risk by definition. And do you see higher incidences in those populations and higher death rates? Luckily, uh, the death rates are still small in numbers, in absolute numbers, but as you know, any death from a preventable disease is really important to try and prevent. Um, We see a higher rate, yes, with Māori and Pacific. Fortunately for me, I haven't come across a death from this terrible illness, but you see more what I call the, the, the high morbidities that are associated with it, the times going to hospital, the follow-ups, the uh, following up on um, relatives or contacts to be immunised. So there's a huge flow-on effect that affects not just the person who's affected, but the whanau as well. And that community, yeah. And when you, you look at the, the populations within those communities, are there vaccination rates on par with Pākehā? That's a really good question. And uh, one of the things is Pacific as a group of, um, you know, 20 different ethnic communities have been able to lift the immunisation rates, um, the examples of the meningococcal campaign, men's B campaign, and even the HPV campaign where I was involved with, with Pacific as a group were quite low. But then using the structures available in the community, mainly schools and churches, uh, lifted those rates that they are now one of the highest nationally. But, you know, I always say we can't be complacent. We need to keep 
the younger ones coming through um, aware that these are really important rates. Within the Pacifica community, though, there are groups that uh, perhaps are not as high as the rest. And this is where it's important for uh, the Ministry of Health, for example, to analyse what are the immunisation rates. We know they're high for Tongans, Samoans, even Fijians, but not so high for um, Cook Islanders and Nguyen's. Uh, and maybe a targeted programme might be appropriate for those um, ethnic groups. So specifically targeting those particular groups and uh, looking at an immunisation program specifically for those groups? I think so, because it's not part of our um, immunisation program at the mm. moment for the meningococcal vaccines. It, I know it's a lot of political... Um, what should I say, discussions around it might have to happen as to how this is made a targeted program. But I'm sure public health um, physicians in our country can help the ministry target those that are um, seen as, we already call them as special groups, you know, those that perhaps would be helped much more for the person at risk plus the whanau and the communities that they live within. So what are the barriers that they face at the moment that are stopping them from getting immunised? Yeah, it's a really good question. And it's the, uh, I guess, the competing realities that a lot of these families live in. Uh, so there's many things. There's one car for the whole whanau. So if that's out uh, because three family members had to go and work in the factory that day, then the child's immunisation takes second place um, if about going to the doctor. There's demands from the church, from the schools, uh, and we take it for granted that uh, preventative programmes are really important, but we know that for minority groups, they always do worse. You know, cervical screening, breast screening are always doing worse because you have to build the structures around it. I always say this to a lot of my colleagues, Pacifica, Whanau and families are reactive. So if someone has a car accident or got a cut or something, yes, they'll go to the doctor to have that fixed. But going along when you're well to do something preventative, like a, an immunisation for this, often takes second place. And that's where good health literacy comes into play. Right. Tell me what you mean by good health literacy. I think it's, and I put this onus on physicians like myself, um, that we improve the quality of that discussion in the 10 to 15 minutes where you have the patient in front of you, that you make sure the information is simple, mm -hmm. is easy to understand, is able to be repeated back to you, uh, that you use an interpreter if that is required, that you ensure that the patient sitting in front of you understands the benefits. And there's a lot of work being done, and I love the work Health, Safety and Quality Commission are looking at at the moment with 
patient surveys of their GPs, of their doctors, looking at how that quality can improve to improve the adherence to prescriptions, to the adherence to dietary advice and things like that. But that's a lot of onus being put on the clinician, the nurses and doctors that are servicing this community. So is there something there that when you've got a patient in front of you for something completely unrelated, that you take that opportunity to talk about immunisation or to immunise the child if they're sitting on their knee? That's that's really important. Opportunistic immunisations or opportunistically tackling the issue that may not be front of mind to the patient, you know, you might be aware that the immunizations are lagging for this particular family. The children are sitting in the waiting room. And I know in a busy practice, it's a real struggle for doctors and nurses to deal with the sore throats or the current problems that the patient has presented with, but to also say, look, while you're here, why my nurse has got a few minutes, maybe she could do mum's cervical smear and maybe we'll just do a catch-up of the 15-month immunisation. I know it takes time, but that goes to a long way, both in terms of getting the immunisations done, but getting the patient and the family understanding that you as their clinician, their physician, cares about their family's health and well-being. Now, I recall that you years ago had been very involved in some of the childhood immunisation targets. How are we as a nation tracking on those? I, I think we're doing better, but we cannot be complacent because if, you know, children are growing all the time and as they look at the targets every month, every three months, although we have lifted well because of the targets, um, it still doesn't go and stay above the 90% mark all the time. Um, so, And this is about getting the children vaccinated on time and then um, the booster shots within a, a specified period of time, is that right? Exactly right, yeah. So that, uh, I mean, targeting has worked in a great way um, and I know that uh, doctors and nurses in practice were driven because they could see how they stood compared to other uh, neighbouring clinics or neighbouring uh, DHBs. So it's been good at driving those rates up. But we cannot be complacent because, you know, as soon as you get this lot through, the next children growing up get to five months, get to 15 months, so they need their vaccinations as well. What else can we do to help improve that and to, to drive that awareness yeah. within not just the GP practice but within the communities as yes. well? Yes. I think getting the word out there, I mean, it's quite strong. I know from experience working with the rheumatic fever campaign that getting the messages out in the languages as a discussion with communities, you know, and it started to, you know, warm my heart that patients would come in maybe six months down the track and said, I was just listening to the radio and this Samoan doctor was talking about sore throats and rheumatic fever and I've got a sore throat, so can I have a throat swab? You know, really understanding the reason behind getting this checked, 
doing the, getting this treated and the prevention of the more serious side effects from heart disease. Um, so it's a multifactorial stuff. I know I labor the work with clinicians because that's where I, I work mainly, but I think getting the messages out into the community, into the churches, into the schools, through the media is very important. Mm-hmm. And I've heard mention that there was a link between um, one of the previous epidemics uh, that we saw in the South Auckland region that was associated with a government ch- change of policy, particularly around housing policy. Can you talk a little bit about that, Going this going back some time now? Yes. Um, I don't know the, the real details uh, for that, but when you look at the meningococcal, uh, particularly the meningococcal B campaign, those rates only improved when the community got together, when you got culturally competent Tongan, Samoan, Fijian nurses going out, talking to their communities, whether it's in a church setting, whether it's a women's ministry setting, and talking about the importance of immunizing their children for the longevity and safety of their families going forward. That uh, health message presented in a culturally competent way and non-threatening way, allowing lay people to ask questions in their own language, really lifted the rates. The Association with government policy, I'm not sure if it was a direct or incidental effect, uh, but we know that we were able to lift, and I know Pacific as a group became the highest rates of immunization uh, during the Mengokokko B campaign because of that community initiative. Brilliant. So it's no one result here. It's about collaboration. It is, and it's ongoing collaboration. You know, doing it once will give you great results. But as I said, we cannot be complacent because as children grow up and get older, now we've got the HPV campaign, you know, for Gardasil. I think it's really important that we don't Uh, in a way, shirk our responsibility for the future generations coming through, that they are well protected with immunisations. Looking back at the recent meningococcal W epidemic in Northland and then thinking about the different strains of the disease that exist, we've got meningococcal B, we've got C and A, W and Y. Have we got the data yet to be able to understand if we're seeing any particular strain of disease that is more um, having a greater impact on any of our Mara and Pacifica populations? That's a really good question. Uh, I don't think we've been vigilant enough at collecting the data and analysing it. Um, so let's take Northland at the meningococcal W um, epidemic from last year. And we know Northland is in health. It's talked about as high-needs Māori populations. There's a lot of Pacific that live up there as well. So by extrapolation, you can say that it is high with Māori and Pacific in those areas. 
but the data has not been analysed enough to show us the background. And it's interesting that when they put out the initiatives and funded the vaccines for meningococcal W, um, a lot of that was using the structures, the clinics were open, the Maori health providers were brought in to try and get people. They used the schools Mm -hmm. as well. I'm not quite sure if they used the churches, but, you know, they tried to lift those rates. Um, Did we meet the targets that they set for immunisation for that epidemic? No, I, I don't think we did. And that's a really good question because I... I heard some narrative about, well, it's been made available and it's made free. You know, why can't you get it? Why couldn't they get there and have the immunisation? And I think that goes back to what I said before, the competing realities. It's This is the real life of some people that they can't just drop everything and go and have the immunisations today and goes back to using all the efforts that we can do to opportunistically. So we need to think about how to get the vaccinations to those people rather than expecting them to come to the vaccination. So as you said, churches or going to the the particular... um, The marae, yes. And, you know, the minister's wives have a, a, a prayer meeting, I suppose you'd call it, where women come in. Well, that's another opportunity that they could bring their preschool children. Uh, going to Kohangareo and uh, Pacific um, daycare centres and opportunistically immunising them. Is it too late to do that now? I don't think so. I don't think. I mean, it has dropped, and that's because of the huge push. Uh, so we're not seeing that. But if you look back the last, I think, five to 10 years, the rates of meningococcal disease, particularly W, are increasing in New Zealand. So we still have to battle this disease. It's I, not as if that one epidemic and the, the immunisation program that was put in place has made it go away. No, I think we cannot be complacent. I think it will continue to sort of bubble beneath the surface. So I think everybody being immunised and uh, protected is a great initiative. And we have to learn from the things that have gone before, learn from our past experiences about how to improve those immunisation rates and get to the people. Correct. I I sometimes think uh, when I heard about the Northland Initiative, I said, oh, great, you know, that they're using all the community structures uh, because doing it the standard way, waiting for them to turn up to my clinic to be immunised, it's not going to work. Um, the competing realities of these people, uh, you know, that's how they live their lives daily. So we have to modify the delivery of our healthcare to suit these populations. So the news reports that we saw of people waiting in line for hours to get this weren't specifically the population that needed it the most. And that's the funny thing about it. You know, it's great that they come across, but we're still missing those ones, probably the very needy, the ones that would very much fit into those special groups that the Ministry of Health talks about that are the ones that need the vaccination. You know, to be brutal about it, it's the one that would give us the biggest bang for our bucks. Mm. But they're the ones that are not fronting. So how realistic is it to think or conceivable to think that the government may put in place either a targeted 
vaccine program or, heaven forbid, a national immunisation program. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I'm not a politician, so I'm not sure how to answer that. I think, um, well, my reality is we know how to make things work better. We know it's the, the minority communities are not going to do well with the preventative initiative that just, done, that just does the same standard vanilla way. If we build all those structures around it, I have huge um, um, expectations that it can work with a targeted program, with all the you know, political implications of that. But I think if we, if we want to do it properly, then we can look back at what we've learned from and go forward using those initiatives. Wonderful. Let's hope we do and that as a nation we've learned. Thanks very much, Andrew. I really appreciate you being with me today, Api, and for being able to speak so openly about how this disease is impacting your communities. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. If you'd like more information about meningitis, you can go to www.meningitis.org.nz. The Meningitis Foundation also has a Facebook page, and if you search Meningitis Foundation, it should come up for you. By liking the page and sharing the posts and the information that you'll find there, you can help to raise awareness of meningitis within your own network of contacts. That's all for this episode. We look forward to having you join us for the next episode in the podcast series. Bye for now.